Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Of all the people that I've met in public life, few have as remarkable a story as Tammy Duckworth, the newly elected senator from Illinois. Raised overseas, uh, she's dealt with uh, issues of poverty in her life. She enlisted in the military, uh, was gravely injured in Iraq, and fought her way back to become a champion for veterans and a a distinguished public servant. Uh, I sat down with Tammy in Chicago the other day uh, to talk about that journey and where America is today. Tammy Duckworth, welcome. First, I should congratulate you on your election as senator from Illinois, seat held by none other than Barack Obama, Yes. At one point, yes. so congratulations on that. You were a you you are a known survivor, <laughs> and you survived another storm here. I did. Thanks for having me on, X. It's good to the, be here. Uh, let, let me let me uh, before we talk about contemporary stuff. I don't know that that many people know your whole story, and it is an amazing story. So let's start from the beginning and your folks and yeah, and uh, your. Your early years. Yeah. I grew up in Southeast Asia. My dad um, was a multiple war man. He comes from a long line of military service. And um, he ended his army career in uh, 1972 or 73, I think, um, but with his second tour of duty in Vietnam. So his first tour of duty was fairly early. uh, And he had... Uh, had switched to reserve status by like 1967, 68. Um, and after his service... So there was a, quite a bit of action there, right? Did he see action in Vietnam? Did he see... Um, he never talked about it. Uh, he, he really never talked about his military service to, to me um, uh, and, uh, or, or my brother. He only talked a little bit about it later on in life to my husband. Hmm. Um, uh, who's also a career military man. Who's also a career military man. So I found out a lot about what my dad did in the service, uh, including his time right at the end of World War II from my husband much later. He never talked to me about it. Um, uh, but Why do yeah, you think was, that was? I think he he's the last vestiges of that World War II generation. He just, they just don't talk about it. They just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was one of these kids who lied about his age and, 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 and ran away from home or not so much run away, ran away from home. He grew up dirt poor and, uh, uh, literally joined the Marines because it gave him clothes and shoes and food. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he ended up literally, I think probably the last, week or two of World War Two, but he was wounded and he got the Purple Heart, um, uh, as far as, you know, we, we know. Um, and so he just didn't talk about it. He just did it. And 
after his service ended uh, in Vietnam, he ended up staying in Southeast Asia, where um, uh, he worked various projects. Um, but his military career had been as a signal officer. So during the Korean War, he served in France, for example, and he was rewiring France, putting up telephone lines uh, for the army. And then he did the same thing in Southeast Asia. So post what made him decide to stay there? After his first tour of duty, he came back to the U.S. and, and got spit on and caught a, a baby killer. Um, and for someone who served his entire life in the military and come, came from a family that served just about every generation going back to the civil, to the um, the Revolutionary War has had a member of my family in uniform. Um, he felt deeply betrayed. He had been married before. His, um, uh, his children from his first marriage were in college. They called him a baby killer. Uh, and mm. so he left and he swore he'd never come back to the States. He That's was painful. In, yeah. He was incredibly patriotic, incredibly patriotic, um, incredibly uh, loved this country. Uh, um, but he just wasn't, it was such a deep hurt for him. That he, yeah, so, it's funny because I grew up, I was a mm-hmm. teenager during that period. And I remember all of that. And I remember the uh, contempt with which uh, mm-hmm. returning service yeah. people were held by those who opposed the war we didn't see that this time i mean when you and your uh and your comrades came back um from uh from iraq and others from afghanistan now you know you go to a ball game and veterans are introduced and the entire stadium uh, Mm -hmm. stands and, and and applauds it's 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 fundamentally different it's fundamentally different, and I make it a point anytime I meet a Vietnam vet to thank him for it, uh, because that's they're the ones who taught this country to love her warriors, even if you don't love the war. And it was the Vietnam vets who did that. And, and so my dad went to work for United Nations refugee programs and development programs in Asia. And is that how he met your mom? He met my mom during his service. So um, uh, I met her in like 65, 66, had me in 68. Uh, um, so she, and she was she was Thai. She's Thai, yeah. She's Thai. So he was going back and forth between Vietnam and Thailand and Laos, even though officially we were not in Laos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he was doing a lot of that, and um, and uh, fell in love with her, and and came back and got married, and and, and what was she doing at the time that they met? Um, she was working in my, her parents. I guess they had a little general store of some sort that um, her, uh, her her family owned, and he just hung around and scared away all of the local uh, her local suitors. So that he was the only one left. Is this <laughs> this American? And she ended up marrying him. So that mm-hmm. worked out for me. I always I always joke with Vietnam vets that uh, I'm the product of a American GIs going on R and R. So you uh, and you and you grew up yeah. uh, in Asia as well. I did. So I grew up all over Southeast Asia. Um, and my dad, because he worked for the UN development programs and refugee programs at various times, uh, it meant that I was in Cambodia until two weeks before the Khmer Rouge took over. He mm-hmm. brought us everywhere. I left on the last commercial flight out. My earliest, Some of my earliest childhood memories were sitting on the rooftop in Phnom Penh of our building, watching um, uh, bombs going off across the river. I watched. And how did you process that? Well, my parents tried to make it exciting and not so scary and and so we watched the tracers from the bombs and the and the firefights and as if they were fireworks and my dad taught us to not be scared of it but our home uh, was guarded by by 
armed soldiers. And I remember going to, with my mom to the market and suddenly being shoved onto the floorboard, um, not knowing why. And it turned out that um, the market had been bombed and there mm. were mass casualties everywhere and she didn't want us to see. Um, but I watched Phnom Penh um, devolved from this beautiful colonial city into just a wreckage. And those are some of my earliest memories as a child and i lived in indonesia for a little over seven years like eight years singapore thailand back and forth my dad by this point was working for multinational corporations and it took him losing his job and us um going through my folks life savings i mean he literally refused to come back to the states until we had no money left whatsoever um and that's when we finally came back to the states and was he was he unhappy about that that you had to come back i think so I think so. I think, but once he got back, um, the nation had changed so much from when he'd been back here in the in the '60s, and by the time we came back, it was the late '80s, and it was such a fundamentally different country um, that he settled right in, and he settled right into the veteran community, and um, and really, I think, felt accepted. He helped found the American Legion post in Centerville, Virginia, where, where where he and my mom ended up living for a while. So I think he reconciled a little bit. What about for you? What what was it like to come here after spending so much of your childhood uh, there? It was surreal. It was surreal because here I was, an American citizen. I'd grown up American. I went to American schools, the Singapore American School, International School of Bangkok, Jakarta International School, all American-style schools. Uh, um, but yet I'd never lived in the States. So while I was home and I felt native, I also felt in many ways like an immigrant. There was so much new that I didn't know about, um, how to use coin-operated payphones and... Uh, food and, and all sorts of stuff. So it was really interesting. It, it was both belonging and not belonging at the same time. And what did you... Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested... You know, I talked to the president about this yeah. because he spent, as you know, part of mm -hmm. his childhood in Indonesia. And mm -hmm. What do you think it did for you as you look back in terms of your, how you look at the country that you lived overseas and saw other countries and mm -hmm. and their challenges? Did it make you... Um, did it did it heighten your sense of patriotism? Did it, did it give you a different view of the United States than perhaps you would have if you had grown up here? Oh, I think it definitely did. And I think because my dad worked for the refugee programs and the United Nations programs, um, my patriotism, I mean, it, it gave me a level of patriotism that I don't think kids grow up with here today now. I was so proud to be an American, David, to follow my dad into refugee camps and and see American Peace Corps volunteers bringing in, you know, aid and American, like my dad, bringing aid to, to refugees as, as Vietnamese boat people were fleeing the country and, and the Cambodians were fleeing communism and the Laotians and, and they were all trying to get to the U.S. And, and I, it really inform who I am today because America just lost a war and I saw a power in our country that was not military based. I saw a, a power that we had that was based on ideals and our values and who we are as a people. And that was really um, shown by the work that our Peace Corps volunteers were doing and our diplomats and USAID and all of that. And and people wanted to be like us. And even as I was growing up in the 80s overseas, um, uh, uh, people wanted to do business with Americans and they wanted to send their kids to American schools. And it just made you so proud. And I was so proud of my country. And then I came back um, and, and I wanted to serve. 
and I thought I was going to serve either in the Peace Corps or the Foreign Service. And um, so it's really interesting to see definitions of American patriotism today and to be very much uh, almost a, a militant one, I guess. Um, well, in a native, there's a, a nativist strand yeah. of this. In that in that yeah. regard, w- were you well received when you when you came here, or did you see signs of um, of hostility mm-hmm. toward you as someone who was viewed as, even though you identified as American, yeah. you were you 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 know others may have thought of you as as an immigrant because you. You probably, when you were overseas, were you speaking English in the home and were you? I spoke Thai till I was eight in the home. Um, and then I started going to American schools and I spoke English. So I, I spoke with this accent. Um, uh, but my dad did a really intelligent thing, both um, in terms of thoughtfully doing it and also because we were desperately poor and we had no money. It was he moved us to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He moved us to Hawaii first. And he just felt that that was the best place to take his kids, his American kids, because it was going to be the best assimilation for us uh, as, as being Asian Americans. Um, and so I didn't feel outside because mm-hmm. everybody in Hawaii is, is, is a multicultural society and it's, uh, uh, it's dominant by Asians. And, and, uh, uh, and so I never felt that. Um, but we also ended up there because all the money in the world we had left only bought us three one-way plane tickets to Hawaii uh, from Thailand. Uh, and then what I really felt different was when I started going to graduate school and I ended up at George Washington and then I came out to Illinois. And that for the first time in my life, I was a minority. And I'd never been a minority. I grew up in Asia. I'm Asian, you know, half Asian. I've been a minority in that I was Amerasian. Uh, um, but, you know, I wasn't too different. I spoke the language and everything. So You mentioned that uh, you guys uh, struggled. Mm-hmm. Um that was a, a serious. Uh, that was a serious issue, uh, yeah. and uh, you've spoken about this, so this mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. groundbreaking to to say. But you, you survived with food stamps and some of the supports that yeah. uh, were uh, the government extended. Mm-hmm. How, how how did your how did your dad process that part? He was deeply ashamed. He was deeply ashamed that he needed to be on food stamps. He was deeply ashamed that he had to get help from charities. It, it, you know, he dug himself out of the Great Depression. He went to college. I mean, it was on the GI Bill, but he had made something of himself. And to end up back where he was, or in many ways he thought worse, because he dragged his kids and his family into it with him, was, I think, it was devastating to him. It, it, it just struck to the heart of who he was as a person. I think this is something that is missed, which is we speak about jobs as an economic issue, mm-hmm. but um, we sort of define ourselves by what we do. Yeah. And um, so there, you know, there's the issue of dignity and self-worth, mm-hmm. and this is how you measure uh, oneself. And yeah. if you can't find work, it's, it's corrupting to the soul. It's damaging to the soul. It is. It is. But they never gave up my parents. So what how did they how did you how did they work their way out of that? Um slowly. Uh while we were on food stamps and, and we were hungry, I worked after school in, in high school. Um I was the only one who had a job. Uh my mom took in sewing. Uh uh she did alterations for a high end boutique. Uh, she had done it's ironic because she started life as a child laborer sewing hats in uh in a in a 
factory in Asia, in Thailand. And she ended up, you know, that's how we ended up surviving was with her sewing. My dad got a job for um, uh, tips only as a doorman for a department store. And he would wander around trying to find um, uh, in Hawaii, there was a grocery store, kind of like an Aldi here, where to use a shopping cart, you have to put back then a, a dime into the shopping cart. When you return it, you could get the dime out. He would wander around trying to find those shopping carts or return it to the nearby grocery mm. store. And if he could find 10 of them, if he could find a dollar in one day um, uh, out of the pay phones, the 10 cents, a dime or, or whatever, then he knew his two kids would eat the next day because school lunch and school breakfast were 25 cents each meal for the two of us. So 50 cents a piece. And he knew his kids would at least get a meal the next day, uh, two meals. Um, and so he. That's so painful to think about that. About what he must have been feeling. Yeah, he skipped meals. He didn't eat so that we would eat. And there's there's a level of desperation you don't understand until you see a proud man who served his country for as long as my dad did, um, accept a lie from his daughter, from me, from his kid, um, knowing that we both knew it was a lie. And that is I would save my milk and my apple or something from my school lunch and bring it home and say, Oh, daddy, I wasn't hungry. Or the kid next to me didn't really want to eat his and you want, you know, here's extra milk, would you drink milk? And sometimes that milk or that apple was all my dad ate that day. And he would accept it. And he would accept that lie. Um, and then we both knew full well that I was skipping meals for him and he was skipping meals for me. And then did he find ultimately find better work? He did. So what he did was he used his veteran's preference and got a job at the Department of U.S. Um, uh, the De- U.S. Department of Agriculture, where he stood on uh, a chicken plant assembly line uh, pr- processing plant and did and inspected and inspected did the USDA inspections as the chickens uh, went flying by on a conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they ended up in back in Virginia. I see. I see. And. Uh- so talk about your decision to uh, to, to join the reserves. Uh, it was out of left field, David, really. I, I thought I was going to go be an ambassador. I wanted to join the Foreign Service. So I ended up at George Washington um, uh, in the International Affairs Program because they had the highest gradu- um, pass rate for this Foreign Service exam uh, in 1990-91 when I was going to school there. And I was in my classes and the Berlin Wall was coming down and we were watching Czechoslovakians fleeing for the border on those trains when Ceausescu let the train, mm-hmm. let, let, let the borders open. And, and I look around in my classes and I realized that the people that I knew and got along with the most were either veterans who served or were people who were in the Guard, National Guard or Reserves uh, officers currently. And they encouraged me to, uh, to try ROTC, they just said, look, you want to join the Foreign Service, you don't have to get a commission, but you should know what America's military power does. What is NATO? What's the Warsaw Pact? What's going to happen to the Warsaw Pact? And you need to understand the difference between a division and a platoon. And the you know, and, and, I, um, and so I said, okay. And I had um, just been laid off from my job, so I had the summer free, and uh, I went off to basic training, and I fell in love. What did your... Uh, what did your- you fell in love with the with, with the army. With the army. With the army. This, this predates falling in love with your husband. Yes. <laughs> uh, the uh, what did your dad say when you told him that you were uh, that you were going to do this? You think you can make it? That's all he said. You think you're going to make it? 
And then he never said a word more until um, my commissioning. And then he showed up with gold-plated second lieutenant bars for me. And then he never said anything again until I was in Iraq. And then I found out that um, he had been sending uh, my pictures and my my letters home to the local newspaper. But he never talked to me about it. Hmm. He just asked me, do you think you're going to make it? That's all he said. And what did you say? That I think so. I'm going to do my best, Daddy. Did you feel challenged uh, by him? No, I felt that I could never, that I was never good enough. I felt that I could never make him proud of me. And he never said he was proud of me until after I lost my legs and just a couple of weeks before he passed away. Uh, we were in the hospital together at Walter Reed. He'd had a heart attack um, just not long before I'd been wounded. And then he came to visit me. And the next day after he showed up, he had a heart attack. And so he was checked into the cardiac ward at Walter Reed. And I was in the amputee ward. And I came down and showed him my new prosthetic for one of my legs. And, and he said, you know, I am proud of you. It's the only time he ever said that. And what did that mean to you? Everything. I hate to go from the sacred to the profane, <laughs> but i got to take a small break here. Sure. And we'll be uh, right back with... Uh, with Senator-elect Tammy Duckworth. You. you jumped a little bit ahead in the story, mm. but um, you, you talk about how you advanced in your career in the reserves and your yeah. decision to go to Iraq, because it really was your decision. It w- it was my decision. Um, well, mostly, like 70% my decision. I So I got my commission, and I chose to... F- um, apply to fly helicopters and I got to do that and I switched from the Army Reserves uh, to the National Guard and I was in the Army Reserves uh, for a while flying out of um, Naval Air Station Glenview mm-hmm. for about five years and when all of that shut down and Glenview shut down my Army Reserve unit decommissioned and so I switched I moved over to the Illinois National Guard and I was just a graduate student working on my PhD still with that dream that you know, someday I'm going to join the Foreign Service and go work in our embassies and and in ROTC. And then I got a job uh, at Rotary International uh, in Evanston, uh, uh, helping Rotarians uh, around uh, Southeast, uh, around Asia. Actually, my my, my territory was Asia, um, and still in the reserves, uh, still flying and and doing my thing in the National Guard. Um, Were you tra- traveling to Asia from time to time? I was. For the I was. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, and uh, uh, when the war happened, and um, I said, uh-oh, you know. Uh, and I had just been in command of my National Guard unit in Midway. I was in command on 9-11. Um, I personally was in, uh, on 9-11, I was in Scotland on vacation, and I came back within 48 hours. Um, but I was the commander. I had been in command for two years, and then I got extended by another year, um, and I just left command uh, when my unit got the mobilization uh, note. Um, so I left to command go to, Iraq. to go to Iraq. Yeah, we had gotten mobilized. We got mobilized in um, May of 2003 and uh, we, while I was in command. And then we stood back down over the summer. And then I left command at the end of October. And in November, um, we got the note that uh, the unit was going. Uh, and uh, I had been moved out of the unit, and I called my boss, and I said, sorry, you have to take me. There's no way that you can't take me. I'll do anything. Please take me. I'm not in the unit anymore, but you've got to take me. Why did you do that? Those are my guys. I trained them for three years as their commander. I knew from the minute 9-11 happened that, that we would something was going to happen. I never dreamt that it was Iraq. I thought it was be Afghanistan. And 
I didn't want to be the one officer standing at the airport saying goodbye to my guys. Um, I didn't believe in the war in Iraq. I didn't think it was the right even thing. Even then. Even then. Even then. Um, uh, I never said it out loud in my unit. I had those private conversations at Rotary when I talked to my colleagues there. Um, I felt that we invaded a sovereign nation needlessly, and we should have been pursuing the war in Afghanistan, destroying our enemies who dared to attack us there. Um, I felt that Iraq was a, ven- a personal vendetta of the Bush family. Um, but, you know, my, my country had elected a president. The Supreme Court had said he was our president. Um, he said this is what he wanted us to do as commander-in-chief. The United States Congress voted on it and said this is what it wanted us to do. And I believe so purely in the primacy of the civilian over the military um, that I said, okay, I'm going. I want to pursue your journey, mm-hmm. but I should have asked you this. Uh, yeah. I, I just wanted on behalf of your husband, Brian, to clarify yeah. that you were talking about falling in love with the Army first. Yes. But uh, <laughs> but tell me what you loved about the military. The discipline and the pure meritocracy of the organization. Um, uh, from the first day that I showed up, it didn't matter if I was male or female. It didn't matter that I was Asian, that I grew up overseas. It didn't, any, none of that mattered. It just mattered if I could do the job and if I was willing to do the job and that if I was willing to stand up for my buddies next to me. And when you were miserable, you were miserable together. And when things went well, you were part of a unit. And, and the, this overwhelming patriotism of serving my nation that I am putting on her uniform and I'm swearing to defend her with my life. And uh, so you, you go. I go. And um, mostly you're, you're coordinating mm-hmm. flying mm-hmm. missions. So uh, how did it come to be that you and were flying them as well? So I was the assistant operations officer. We needed every pilot who could fly to be flying. Um, at first, I started up flying once a week on missions, and then I, I begged and pleaded, and uh, uh, my boss said, okay, you can fly twice a week, a week and sometimes three times a week. Um, and so uh, I felt... Why did you want to fly? Because I love flying. I love being part of... It's the best part. Being part of a crew is, is the most... You're, you're part of this cohesive unit. It's It's... You want to be with your guys, and, and you're, you don't want anyone to face danger and you not face the same danger. Uh, you're, so you have to take the same risk. It's, but no, then, I, I, yeah. I will tell you that I, one of my recollections of working for the president was uh, we made an unannounced trip to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we landed at, uh, and, and we, we landed and we flew into Kabul, and um, the... Uh, it was at night, mm-hmm. and there were four sort of gunners at mm-hmm. all, all corners of the the, the chopper who were yep. with night vision glasses to uh, to repel yep. any attacks that came. Did you take on fi- before the flight on on which you were shot down? Had you taken hostile fire? Um. I personally, once before, um, and I think it was an RPG as well. We had one go off um, uh, not too far from us, but that was my my personal first time when we actually were hit. Um, uh, I was going up north towards Erbil, towards Kirkuk and Erbil, uh, uh, when we took the last one, and that was fairly early on. I was probably in the first 
four months that I was there. This was within my last, I mean, we were getting ready to come home when I was hit November. Um, uh, we were due to come home uh, in the spring. So we were, you know, last well, the three, first, four months. The first, but the first time that you were hit mm-hmm. by the RPG, the, not the one that took you down, what was your, what was the that like when you realized, like, that was that was a close call. It wasn't that close to us, but yeah, I mean, it was. We could see it right there. Oh, um, I see. It didn't hit. Yeah, it didn't hit. It did mm-hmm. not hit us. Uh, we we flew past and 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 boom, there was things like, oh shit, that was an RPG hit. That was RPG. That was an RPG going off. Um, and we'd flown, you know, uh, in lots of times when there were um, uh, the black puffs that happened into the cloud, which is just basically the the fire, the small arms fire that happened from here there. But for the most part, our missions were pretty routine and, and quiet um our unit had taken hits you know uh any t- flying into abu Ghraib, mm-hmm. uh we often uh got reports of uh of guys taking um small arms fire at them uh mainly because of the way it's situated in order to come in you got to come low and slow and you're you're sitting ducks for the small arm fire um that that's was, the infamous prison in mm-hmm, iraq mm-hmm. Yeah. and i flew into abu Ghraib myself a couple of times we didn't take any none that we noticed um uh but there was definitely a heightened mission whenever we did that so um, talk about the mission uh, that uh, yeah. on which you were hit it was during the second battle for fallujah uh and in fact uh mad dog um mattis uh, uh was uh, the commander then uh in with for the marines i believe uh, at that same at that same time period mm-hmm. um and I, uh, what's his reputation then, by the way? If you want to go in and you want to find and destroy the enemy and kill them, he's your guy. So, Mad Dog wasn't just a kind of affectionate. Uh, no, the, no. The, he he earned that. He earned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I learned, you know, since being in Congress, because he's testified before he retired m- multiple times in front of the Armed Services Committee that I've on uh, that I'm on. I, I also learned to appreciate his scholarly aspect. He's quite the scholar as well. Um, and I, I, I could see that in his testimony and I appreciated it. I disagree with him on a lot of things uh, when it comes to, he doesn't think women should serve in combat and, and all. And I think he's, you know, I'm not sure how he, um, it, whether he's taken a, a stand against um, a don't ask, don't tell and, and all of that. But, um, but if you want someone to run a war and destroy the enemy. He's the guy. We'll get we'll get yeah. back to 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 that. So you're so, take me back to your mission. Completely normal day. It was a great day. Um, uh, it was the beginning of uh, uh, fall over there, so it was a little chilly in the morning. And some of the decisions we made made all the difference in the world. It was a little chilly, but we knew it was going to get warm, so we still left the doors off the aircraft. Uh, uh, when it got a little warmer, we we're going to have colder. We we're going to have to put the doors on. But that day was like you know what? We just suck it up. Uh, it'll be worth it in the afternoon. And in fact, it helped because it allowed the charge, the explosive charge to dissipate instead of being trapped in the aircraft. Had the doors been closed, more people would have been wounded. Having the doors off actually dissipated the charge a little bit. Um, uh, we'd stop in the green zone for lunch. Uh, we were headed back to home base. And then we got the call that some passengers in Taji uh, uh, needed needed a ride and um they called me and they knew i was out flying and i was the operations officer so they said uh, you know can we have permission to do this and i talked to my crew and they all just wanted to go home i was like guys we, we can't leave these guys out there so we diverted and went on a part of a mission that we were never assigned and went to pick them up and by the time we got there the passengers weren't there we picked up different pass a different passenger and um headed home and 10 15 minutes from from balad uh, we got hit and 
describe that because you were you sort of took the point of impact there. I did. So the first thing I heard was um, you were piloting this chopper. Um, I was co. So the pilot. Uh, I've been flying the entire day, and another coincidence that really worked out well for us was that um, not. Five ten minutes before this, the pilot in command, Chief Warrant Officer Dan Milberg, the real hero, took control of the aircraft. So he was actually on the controls. Uh, he said he called me a stick pig. Uh, it's our nickname for someone who just likes to fly and doesn't won't won't let the other pilot touch the controls. He goes, mm-hmm. "Stop being a stick pig. It's my turn to fly." I said, "All right, fine." So he was flying. Um, I just handed the controls over to him, which worked out well because when when the explosion happened to me, it blew me backwards and I went forward into the controls and we would have nosedived right into the ground had I been on the controls but because he was on them um, uh, he was able to pull the aircraft back up Uh, tap 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 metallic on metallic small arms fire and I um, uh, am I allowed to swear on a podcast yes all right great that's a great thing about podcasts (laughs) we'd never make it on radio we'd never make it on radio (laughs) I said I said fuck man I think we've been hit and he said, you know, he responded, and, and I was leaning forward um, uh, to uh, try to put a target store on the GPS. It's funny how your training takes over, and it's so automated. Our GPS wasn't working that day, but the training is so ingrained in you that the first thing I did was reach forward to try to program the GPS for the exact points or the um, data points we could report up to um, uh, 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 the talk that uh, where we took taken a small arms fire and right then boom the fireball happened in my lap with the RPG going off um, and uh, it, it took off most of the back of my right arm because that was sticking out from the um, you know I had that mm-hmm. forward uh, and it blew off my right leg it basically vaporized it um, and my left leg was um, kicked up into the instrument panel and the force of that just sheared it um, almost off it was hanging with some on a little bit uh, it made it to the hospital my right leg did not my right leg most of the leg was vaporized and i think from the knee down was laying on the floor of the cockpit did you realize uh, right away what had happened to you did you realize that your legs were gone i did not i did not um the cockpit got was filled with smoke um black smoke and i talked to my crew and no one answered and um, I kept trying to, f- I got on the controls because I said, oh, no one else is, you know, Dan's hurt and he's not answering. I better, f- I need to fly this aircraft. You got to land it. And I got on the controls. What I didn't realize was that my legs were no longer there. Um, uh, I got frustrated because the aircraft wasn't responding. Um, and I also Because didn't- you couldn't operate the foot. Right. Yeah, cows. I had no feet. <laughs> I had no, uh, um, and, uh, and... I did not know that Dan was actually on the control. Dan Milberg was on the controls and he was bringing the aircraft in for landing. And the only control that I possibly had that was still working was the collective, which, which is the power control. Um, and what I also didn't know was that um, I was blacking out and coming to, blacking out, coming to. And every time I woke up, I would try to fly and then I would black out. Um, uh, Dan said every time he looked over and I was passed out. Um, uh, and so um, the last memory I have is um, the aircraft landing uh, I saw Dan do an emergency engine shutdown, realized he hadn't quite gotten it shut down, tried to raise my left hand to finish the emergency engine shutdown because you don't want a fire to start. And then I don't remember anything else after that. I've been told that I woke up in the emergency room and, and, and people have come up to me and talked about conversations they had with me, but I don't remember that personally. You uh, you were, they they thought you were gone, your, 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 your buddies, mm-hmm. and they went back for you anyway. They did. Um, 
they Dan um, in his civilian life is a police officer and EMT, and he'd seen many dead bodies before, and he knew I was gone, but he wasn't going to leave me. Uh, so he got my crew chief, um, Sergeant Fierce, uh, uh, into the second aircraft, and then they came back. Uh, uh, me and one other uh, uh, came back, and he and one other soldier to help carry me out to the second aircraft. You uh, you were in uh, you were in rehab, and you. Mm-hmm. Had- you went through just this horrendous experience. How many yeah. surgeries did you have? I don't know. It was every other day for a long time. Uh, they called them surgeries. Uh, mostly they were debridement of wounds, uh, but you know they put you under general anesthesia and you wake up groggy and in pain. And and what was your state of mind during this whole period? Obviously, you said at one point uh, your dad came to see you. Yeah. But that would, must have been later because you went down to see him, right? Right. So it started... Um, so I was I was hurt on November twelfth. I woke up sometime around November twenty third. Uh, they kept me um, uh, uh, they kept me under for about eleven eleven twelve days. Um, those first that first week was just pain. It was just pain and anger. Um, what was your anger? I wanted to kill the motherfucker who shot me down. I wanted to go hunt him down and and, and go after him, um, uh, and it it made me mad that I could that I didn't have a chance to shoot back. I didn't have control. I, I don't have any guns on my aircraft that the pilot can control, but my door gunners and mm-hmm. you know if I grabbed my nine mil out, I would have shot it, uh, thrown things at the guy. I, I wanted to go back and and, and get him, um, but um, and then it was just trying to get back to my unit, trying to recover and get back to my unit, and. Um- during this period, you were in in for a year, right? Yeah, thirteen months. Mm-hmm. Um, I read some somewhere that you had a lot of uh, visitors, including a lot of politicians <laughs> I visiting did. you. Yeah. And you you said uh, you you described it as a petting zoo for yeah amputees. So we started calling ourselves the amputee petting zoo because mm-hmm. what was happening was remember this is the height of the war. Fallujah was happening. We were cash. Walter Reed was flooded to the gills with casualties, and politicians were coming through all the time to look at you know to try to a lot of them to look at you to take pictures with you. There were a lot of folks from the Bush administration who were there just for the photo op with you, and you never heard from them again. You knew who was there for you and who was there for them. Uh, and the ones who were there for you came back multiple times on a regular basis, quietly. Uh, and, and there were the photo ops guys, and, and we just started calling ourselves the amputee petting zoo because we felt like we were on display. One of them was uh, Donald Rumsfeld, right, the defense secretary. Didn't he come by? Yeah. To, and and, and what, how did you react to that? I refused to see him. <laughs> I was, I, you know, I, I tried to be a good soldier the whole time I was there, and I think that day I, I had just gone, it was just, I was hurting a lot. I was tired. It was late at night. A colonel came running down the hallway uh, from the public affairs office, and he stuck his head in the door and goes, "Oh my God, you're so lucky! You're in your room. Secretary Rumsfeld is coming. Secretary Rumsfeld's coming. You're 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 next. He's gonna be in your room next." And I just looked at him and I said, "Do I have to see him?" And I think I I stopped him in dead in his tracks and he said, "What do you mean, Secretary of Defense?" I said, "Yeah. If it's an order, then of course I'll see him." And he goes, "No, it's not an order, soldier. You don't have to see him." I said, "Great. Then I don't want that mandatory to cross the threshold of Why my door." Why did you feel that way? Um, cause I felt that he and, and, 
Dick Cheney and the president started this war for themselves. And it wasn't anything about who we were. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I always felt that way. But as a soldier, you keep your personal opinions to yourself. And, 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 but I think that night, I just had had enough. And, and I wasn't going to tell him that I just said, if it's not an order, then I'd rather not see him. Thank you. They're, they're not here to uh-huh. defend themselves. But do you, I mean, in retrospect, is that do you still feel that way? Do you? I or, do. I do. I think what they was both, the motivation when you say for themselves? I think that there was a personal vendetta going on with the Bush family um, against Saddam Hussein. I think there was a, a, a monetary uh, a, um, component of it with with Mr. Cheney. Which, uh, uh, I also think that there was a lot of chest thumping bravado hawks to be hawks but never serving our themselves aspect of it spending the lives of young men and women who swore to defend this nation for their own you know as if it's a currency for themselves and that's not what it's for how does that inform your i want to there was an interim yeah. period before you served in congress when mm-hmm. you were in the veterans administration mm-hmm. both in illinois and then country mm-hmm. and i want to get back to that but mm-hmm. how does that uh, inform your thinking as a member of Congress when these issues of uh, of, of war and peace come up? I think that civilians are enamored with the idea of America's strength being a military one, and and that they are oftentimes willing to spend this currency, this treasure. It's not you know our greatest national treasure isn't dollars and tanks and helicopters but it's the lives of the men and women who wear the uniform and i think that um too often the and i've said this before that too often people are quick to sound the drums of war um but they're not the ones who march off to war and i feel that in the position that i'm in now i have a responsibility to say is this truly what you what you want us to do, is this truly worth it? Is this truly in America's national interest? Are we truly defending the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic? Are we truly defending America in doing this? Because if it is the case, then yeah, I'm all for it. I'm not a dove, David. I, I'm not a hawk, but I'm not a dove Plainly. either. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but this is what it's going to cost. This is what it's going to cost. Not just a trillion dollars. This is what it's going to cost in terms of the greatest treasure we have, our men and women in uniform. And if that is the case, then I'm going to be with you and I'll be with you 100% of the way. And by the way, my family bleeds first. I think uh, that uh, the other question that too often mm-hmm. is not asked is, what then? And that right. was the problem with Iraq. It right. was not just the initial decision, but the failure to think through what what happened next what happens when you have a country that is deeply mm-hmm. divided in a sectarian way how do you mm-hmm. how do you govern how long will the united states mm-hmm. have to be there in mm-hmm. order to uh, secure uh, secure the country You're going to take another short break we'll be right back with tammy duckworth I mentioned that you work for uh, veterans organizations, which were uh, not organizations, but veterans administrations in both Illinois and uh, and nationally. I mean, obviously, there is an awful lot of consternation about mm-hmm. the VA still, and we've seen um, you know scandalous reporting mm-hmm. about long waiting lists and so on. What what needs to be done? 
to fix the VA in a way that it's responsive, given that we've got this large, large number of veterans like yourself mm-hmm. who rely on the VA for their care as a result of these two wars? Well, it's more than just the two wars, David. Um, I, let, let me start off by saying that the VA is the largest hospital healthcare network in the nation. It's a thousand facilities if you count all of the outpatient clinics. Um, uh, and it does a really good job most of the time. But even just one time that a patient is wounded or is injured or dies or doesn't get the care that he or she needs in a VA hospital, it's not acceptable. Uh, but but for the most part, it does a really good job. I go to Heinz VA's, my primary, that's where I go to get my health care. I know firsthand how good the quality of care is. Um, uh, but what Americans don't realize is we actually have means testing for the VA. Americans think that any veteran can go to the VA for health care. That's not the case. You actually uh, have to make less than a certain amount of money uh, uh, and only, and then um, you're only treated for the injury, the the illness or injury you have that is connected to your military service. Um, unless you are 100% disabled like me, then everything gets cared for. Um, uh, but if you're not, then you only get that bum elbow that you hurt getting cared for, nothing else, unless you are below, you know, 30,000. I don't know what the threshold is right mm-hmm. now for this year, but it's it's fairly low. It's a means-tested system. Um, uh, and people don't realize that the veterans that are going to VA for care, for the large part, are not Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. You see, because Vietnam veterans are now reaching their mid-60s mm-hmm. and 70s, and they're reaching a stage of life when uh, so many illnesses that come from Agent Orange exposure really take hold. Parkinson's, uh, ischemic heart disease, leukemia, uh, prostate cancer, uh, diabetes. Uh, so the VA is, is actually experiencing multiple booms. It's got all these young veterans coming in from the two wars. It's got uh, uh, Gulf War veterans with this vague, undefined illness, Gulf War syndrome that's only getting progressively worse. It's got Vietnam veterans coming back. Uh, it's still dealing with geriatric care for Korean veterans because they're living longer than any veterans have ever lived before. And so the VA is just under this massive load that Americans don't realize. What has to happen? Uh, we have to decide. Are we going to fund it all? And that is an enormous price tag. But if that is what we're going to do, then we need to just go ahead and do it and stop creating gates to make veterans meet. You know, we, 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 we've set up all of these barriers that veterans have to navigate in order to get in for care. Once you're in the system, it's a good system and you can get the care that you need. Uh, but even then, you still have unacceptably long waits because there's just not enough physicians to take care of the population of veterans. There are that all these are heartbreaking there. stories about mm-hmm. people who are st- uh, suffering from uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. As a result, certainly we know we've got uh, veterans who who've gone mm-hmm. on multiple tours, sometimes mm-hmm. four and yeah. five, uh, who who are uh, you know, experienced all kinds mm-hmm. of issues with depression mm-hmm. as a result of their service and can't get the help they need, high suicide mm-hmm. rates. There's got to be something that can be done about that. There is. Well, one of the things is VA can actually allow more mental health professionals to serve in that capacity. VA actually has an arcane system in its bureaucracy because it is one of the largest bureaucracies in, in the United States government, over 300,000 employees, um, with who they'll allow to treat veterans I understand why they're there, but to say that you must have a master's degree from a certain accredited accreditation program means that trained counselors can't do it, 
means that um, uh, other mental health professionals can't do it. And at a time when VA simply does not have the capacity to treat every single veteran who needs mental health care. And, and they need to change that system. And they, So, you know, changing the VA is, is a number of things. Slashing through the bureaucracy, um, uh, increasing the commitment to what it's going to cost to take care of all those veterans. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we have to just be willing to do that. And unfortunately, there's inertia in both the bureaucracy itself that resists the change. You were well. part of the bureaucracy I was. at one point. I was. And I left because I got frustrated that I couldn't make the changes that I wanted to make in order to make in order to fix some of the problems. And I realized some of those fixes had to be legislative. Now, the president-elect has, has said, and others have said, that he wants to allow veterans to get care out of mm-hmm. system. Is that something that should be done? In other words, get go to the nearest hospital or and have the VA pay for that? I think there needs to be a hybrid. Um, I do not support privatization of VA. Uh, and that's what... That's what generally Republicans have wanted to do. They want to turn the VA into a voucher system, and every veteran would just get a health care card, and you go to wherever you wanted to go to get the care. The problem with that is that we're going to miss um, service-connected illnesses. I'll give you an example, David. If, you, if a, a, a man in his, say, 65-year-old man, 66-year-old man, goes into his local doctor, and he gets diagnosed with uh, diabetes or prostate cancer, he'll get treated for that and, and very well cared for. But if that same man goes into a VA hospital and he gets treated for that, the first thing that doctor is going to say is, are you a Vietnam veteran? Let's treat you for all of the other conditions related to Agent Orange exposure. Because you see, prostate cancer is much more prevalent among men who have um, Agent Orange exposure. Diabetes, ischemic heart disease, leukemia B, all of these illnesses. If you go to the VA the doctor will immediately look at all of the other potential illnesses and, and you'll get diagnosed with the diabetes. And then once you're diagnosed with diabetes, if you want to get that diabetes cared for near your home where you don't have to travel so far, where you don't have to wait so long, then yes, I support letting having VA pay for that. But I want you to come through the VA first uh, because outside of the VA, many of your other illnesses will be missed. Uh, a, a, a man in his 40s, uh, early 50s will come into VA and say, I'm tired. I have these achiness. I have some weird neurological problems. It's not Parkinson. I'm not sure what's going on. He'll get a battery of tests at a civilian doctor. Um, and they might, you know, diagnose him with chronic fatigue syndrome. But at the VA, the first thing they're going to say is those are symptoms of Gulf War illness. Are you a Gulf War veteran? Mm-hmm. Did you or, you know, um, and, and then they'll start checking for everything else. So it's important that Veterans come through VA, get the proper diagnosis, get the care for those things that VA is an expert in, polytrauma, amputation, all of those types of things. Um, uh, And then for those things that uh, uh, treatments are commonly available, diabetes, prostate cancer, go ahead and get those taken care of outside. I get both at my VA. So I get my health care at VA. But when I got pregnant with my baby, um, VA doesn't have obstetrics program, so they referred me to Northwestern, mm-hmm. and they paid for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good model of what I think we should be doing. Well, when you ran for the Senate, uh, uh, you obviously didn't uh, anticipate that you'd be coming with this particular administration. No. Um, 
one of the things that has evolved since Donald Trump's election has been that he has appointed a series of generals in some significant positions, Homeland Security. Obviously, you mentioned uh, General Mattis at Defense, uh, General Flynn as the National Security Advisor. And people have raised the issue as to whether this is threatens the notion of civilian control over the military. What's your sense of that as someone who's served in the military all these years? I think that's a real problem, David. Uh, one of the things I've been doing uh, uh, in Congress, uh, for I've actually helped introduce legislation that would close the revolving door between uh, generals who leave the Pentagon one day and then goes to work for a defense contractor, oftentimes coming back to the Pentagon in a civilian suit, mm-hmm. uh, 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 working on the very same projects that you are a decision maker on. That's wrong. I think that separation is there. It's why I sent a letter to leadership. It's why I've just voted against the continuing resolution. I've never voted against uh, a a continuing resolution for our nation's budget to keep it going until this time. And I voted against it because um, the Republican leadership tried to slip in uh, uh, and did successfully a waiver for General Mattis to allow him to serve um, uh, as Secretary of Defense less than seven years from – when he left the military. It's a real danger. We're a great nation. We're the greatest nation on the face of the earth and the greatest democracy because we're not a military junta. So we shouldn't be starting on that slippery slope towards it. And 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 I do think that folks who's civilians oftentimes are enamored with the Hollywood version of what a four star general is. Uh, they don't know everything. They don't. They're not. You know. They're they're great at the one thing that they do. Um, uh, and and I have great respect for four star generals. But but let's be realistic about whether or not that person is qualified for the job to which you are nominating them. And and Congress needs to do its job and have full oversight and have the hearings and have those questions. And as far as General Mattis is concerned, he there should be a hearing on full hearing on whether or not he should get this waiver. Mm-hmm. And do you have you re- you 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 cast that vote in the House, or have you rendered a judgment on that yet? I don't. I, I have not because I think that we need to have a hearing on whether or not we should do it, and 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 it should be public hearings so that the American people know what the dangers are and what's at stake. That's been part of the problem with uh, how we've gone to war, and and because there's, I, I don't think American people see the full cost of the deliber- of of what we're trying to do or even know what the goals are or what the end state should be. I mean, we're still operating under the 2001 authorization for use of military forces in the, in the Middle East. There was one in 2001, 2003. The one that we're using to justify our actions everywhere is 2001. If Senator Kane and some others have tried to uh, yeah. update that. Uh, do you uh, support that? Absolutely. But I think that Congress is, is afraid to have that discussion because they hate to be on the record, and it's far easier to just let it slip on by. But it's a disservice to the troops. It's a disservice to the men and women who put their lives on the line, because they need to know what their left lane, their right lane is, what they're expected to do, what the parameters are, what the end state is, all of those things. And we are putting troops back overseas over and over and over again to harm's way without clearly defining for them what we expect them to do. It's a, so not only is Congress not doing its job, we're letting down our military. What uh, are you familiar with the other generals with uh, with General Kelly and General Flynn? They've testified. I don't know them uh, uh, personally or had any experience with them. What about the general thrust of uh, Mr. Trump's appointments? 
what's your sense of those? I almost get the sense that it's whoever he gets along with when he has dinner with that person that night. I, I hate to say it. It it it, it seems Apparently it didn't work for Mitt Romney, but uh. no, I guess he was not as good a dining companion, <laughs> I guess, or something. I really feel like that he makes that Mr. Trump makes snap judgments, and I don't think he knows who he's thinking of leaning towards until he does it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not party to those conversations. That's sort of the sense I Although get. Although you're going to be a party to deciding whether those yeah. appointments move forward. Whether or not they're qualified. I look forward to being there to determine whether or not they're qualified. And if they're qualified, I'm not going to rule someone out just because they were nominated by, by Donald Trump. If they're qualified to do the job, they're qualified to do the job. Even if you disagree with their philosophy. Even if I disagree with their philosophy. If I think they can do the job, uh, and then you know, that's the advice and consent role of, of the Senate. Um, what do you see generally your role in the Senate? How do you see, what role do you want to play? Obviously, you're very passionate on these issues of national security. Um, what, what, what do you want to carve out as your niche in the United States Senate? Well, David, in addition to the work I've been doing on federal procurement reform, well, on the military and on, on, on VA, I'd like to work on federal procurement reform, which is something I've been doing in the House. Um, I sort of made it uh, a priority uh, in DOD to go after the waste and fraud that happens in DOD, but it happens all across government. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I introduced a bill that um, is going to save taxpayers $4.3 billion over five years based on how the military purchases camouflage uniform. And I think about what Illinois could do with one fiftieth of $4.3 billion. Uh, and, and that was just wasted money. Um, do you think there's uh, the, uh, another thing that uh, candidate Trump said was that he wanted to increase the military budget uh, based on what you know, having served in the House uh, on the committees you served, mm-hmm. do you, would you support that? In some ways, if it comes to um, more funds towards readiness and training of military personnel, yes, absolutely. Upgrading certain pieces of equipment, yes, absolutely. But if it means unfettered uh, uh, um, uh, corporatization of military functions or turning over of huge swaths of the defense budget to corporate, uh, uh, you know, to Mr. Trump's corporate uh, uh, friends, no, of course not. Um, uh, you know, I, because the other thing I want to work on, David, is, is manufacturing. I think Illinois should be leading a national manufacturing renaissance. And if we're blowing money on, on you know, uh, things that we can't afford in the military that are of no use for national security or, or the training and the readiness of our troops, uh, then we can't spend that money on uh, STEM education, on technical programs and free community college and all of the things that will help that renaissance. Of course, he'd agree with you. He'd say that uh, he's also for manufacturing. That's why he's taking the position he's taken on trade and why he did what he did with Carrier. You see yourself as being able to find common ground on that? Yeah, I I am willing to work with anyone uh, if I think that what they're trying to do will benefit my state and my country. And, and, and if Mr. Trump proposes legitimate policies that I think will benefit Illinois and be- benefit our country, then, then I'm more than happy to work with him. I'm going to start off, David, by assuming that he loves this country as much as I love this country. If you can start off from that point, I think you can learn to work with anyone. Well, Tammy Duckworth, I appreciate you being here. Appreciate you. your friendship. And most of all, I appreciate your service, uh, you. which has been something to behold. Thank you. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.